Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Awesome. Thanks, Carmen, and Zoe, and Nathan. And if y'all have any questions about the Hispanic Federation, please, Carmen will be here at brunch afterwards, so talk with her. I know she'd love to answer any questions you might have. Uh, can you look to your neighbor and say, bring Lucky Charms next week? All right, everyone say that. <laughs> right? And, and, and if they're able to, just take out all the letters and just leave the marshmallows. Come on, that's all the best part anyway. <laughs> um, welcome, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your first time, thank you so much for being here. Uh, as Nathan said, we're a new community of faith uh, that believes and embodies that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. And that, we're actually going to talk a little bit more about that today. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a series called The Paradigm. And what we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. Um, and for, for many Jews, uh, it's believed to be sort of the first book of their Hebrew scriptures. Genesis is kind of like the prologue. It's the primeval story. Uh, Exodus is where the action starts. Um, and we've been looking at Exodus, and we've basically been making the contention that Exodus is the meta-narrative of the world. That within the story of Exodus, wherever you are, whatever age you live in, whatever time, uh, whatever people group, you can find your story there. And we're in the second half of the story, um, if you're just picking up with us. We're in the second half. So it opened with Israel, who's in Egypt, and they are enslaved in Egypt. And then God calls a mediator named Moses, and he sends Moses to Pharaoh, and he basically tells him to, to let his people go, and to let the Israelites go so that they may go into the desert and worship me. Um, after Pharaoh kind of takes the hard road and says no many times, uh, God inflicts plagues, uh, culminating in the death of the firstborn, uh, both, both Egyptian and animal in Egypt. And then finally, they re Pharaoh releases the Israelites, and they're in the desert, right now. They sort of have the first stumbles in the desert of learning what it is to be a free people. And then right now, where we currently are in the story, they're on, they're, they're on Mount Sinai. So God has revealed to Moses the law, the Ten Commandments. And then last week, we talked about the Book of the Covenant. So we said that the Ten Commandments are kind of like the skeleton of God's face. Uh, the Book of the Covenant, which is chapter 20 through 23, is kind of fleshing out the contours of that face. And I find it really interesting, and we kind of pointed this out. I just want to return to it, because uh, I think it's, it's, it's worth remembering as we go through this story. God gave Israel the law before Israel had the land, right? Like right now, where they are, God is telling Moses to tell Israel, I'm leading this people to the promised land, and they will inherit this. But they don't have it yet. God says, instead, what's going to constitute you as my people is not the land that you possess, but the words of life that I give you, this philosophy, these commandments. This is what's going to define you as my people, such that when you don't have the land, you do not cease to be my people. The land is a gift to my chosen people. The land does not make you my chosen people, which is really fascinating for us uh, as Christians to think through, especially when throughout the Christian epistles, we're constantly referred to, as we just sang, uh, as strangers and aliens, as refugees. 
We're constantly said that, you know, we're in this world, but it's not our home. We're awaiting a new home. And so today we're going to get through uh, chapters 25 through chapters 30. We're going to read all five chapters word by word. It's going to be great. Totally joking, guys. Totally. We're not going to do that. Um, and the reason why, we're going to take this big chunk because it's, it's sort of all one, one part. It's the directions that God is giving Moses for how to build the tabernacle. It's the directions for Moses for how to build the tabernacle. And just as we go forward, and I'm going to use that word a lot, tabernacle, and some of you may not know what it is. A tabernacle is essentially a, a portable church, or we might say a church plant. Ho-ho! Look at those parallels. It's a portable church. So think in your head like old-time circus, right? They get on the train. They go to a new town. They get off the train. What do they do? They put in poles. They put in curtains. They set up the big canopy. That's the tabernacle. And we'll talk more about that. So as Israel is traveling, wherever they go, they're able to build this portable home where God dwells among them. And originally, uh, for any of you who've been journeying with us, today's Vision Sunday. We're going to sort of cast vision for where we feel like God is calling Hope Brooklyn to go in 2018. Um, and what I was going to do is I was going to cast vision first and then jump into the text. But amazingly and totally unplanned, guys, today's text, obviously our vision is encapsulated in today's text. So I don't need to answer the question of how is this the paradigm? This is how it's the paradigm. Like it fits Perfectly. In today's text, chapter 25 through 30, God is telling Moses to tell Israel that this is how they are to build the place where he will dwell among them. And then later on, I'm going to tell you guys of what I feel like God is telling us for what Hope Brooklyn's going to be going forward. Right? That's kind of spooky a little bit, but it's also not when you worship this God for a while. You're like, oh, of course you would. That's just how you do. So, we're gonna, first we're going to look at chapter 25 through 30, and, and then we're going to get into, all right, well, what, what does that mean for Hope Brooklyn? How is this the paradigm? So before we jump into it, will you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, we silence our hearts, we silence our minds. I know many of the people who walked in today have deep pains. I know many of the people who walked in today don't understand you, have really deep questions for you that seemingly you're not answering. I know many of the people walking in today feel deeply ashamed of decisions they've made or of things that have happened or they seem stuck in a rut or any number of things. The promise of your gospel is not that we have to draw near to you, but that you've drawn near to us. Fully aware of how deeply unworthy we are to be in your presence. That doesn't concern you in the slightest. You've made the way. And so your words to your people today, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I have come to set you free. Turn your eyes upon my son. Look full into his wonderful face. So Lord, I, I, I pray for encouragement for everyone here. I pray that people would know how deep your love is for them. I pray that um, we'd know a little bit more about you today when we examine 
how you worked and interacted with your people Israel thousands of years ago. And that we would leave today emboldened and um, galvanized by what you're doing in this community. That we want to be a part of what you're doing. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we thank you. Amen. All right. So chapter 25 through 30. It's detailing the building of the tabernacle, the building of the portable home, the circus tents, all right? Just think about that whenever I say tabernacle. And it's confusing. It's a confusing couple of chapters. And the reason why is because it's using units of measurement, which we don't use anymore, like cubits, which is just a foot and a half, if you're wondering. Uh, And it's using items. God's talking about items that Israel needs to build, which are kind of uh, irrelevant and inaccessible to us, like the priest wearing an ephod, and like golden lampstands and incense altars and the Ark of the Covenant. Like we don't really have any accessibility to that because the church doesn't really utilize Arks of the Covenant anymore. And so it's really confusing. And the question you immediately think as you come to this text is, well, then how do I read it? How are we supposed to read God's directions to Moses, to Israel, for how to build the tabernacle? Well, one way we're not going to read it is allegorically, all right? Allegory, which is a beautiful um, move in literature, but allegory basically means that everything means something. So this actually means that. Um, so they would say the, the lampstand, the golden lampstand is, is the light of Christ. And I think that's a beautiful idea. It's not that I have anything against that. I just think that's a little too easy. That's a little too simple. Now, if you remember last week, what we said about Israel's law, right? Because that's a question. That's a fundamental question for us. What do Christians do with Israel's law? And the refrain that we um, tried to get you to walk out with is, Israel's God is our God, but Israel's law is not our law. The common denominator when we examine this story is not the law, but Israel's God. The trans-historical God who's working in one historical moment with his people. And this God who is in all moments is now working with us. So then extend that to the tabernacle. If Israel's God is our God, but Israel's law is not our law, Israel's God is the God who builds tabernacles wherever he goes. Israel's God is the one who builds portable homes among his people so that he can dwell with his creation. We said uh, Mark Twain's quote, history rhymes, it doesn't repeat. I think that's, that's getting on something right there. That when we look at how God acts, we see a rhyming in his actions, not necessarily a repeating, but almost like a, a rhyming and a deepening, a, a harmonizing of this grand symphony that God has been writing since the beginning of creation. All right? So keep that in mind as we sort of dive into this text. So here's how chapter 25 Open. So right before, so Moses has finished receiving the book of the covenant about the laws. And now God tells Moses uh, to command Israel about building the tabernacle, building his home. And this is how it starts. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You're to receive the offering from me, from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Now these are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat hair, ram skin, dyed red, and another type of durable leather. 
Cassia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them, make a taber- have them make a tabernacle for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Now, let me go ahead and just address the elephant in the room. Yeah, at the end of today, I'm going to ask you to financially partner with what Hope Brooklyn's doing. Okay? That's going to happen. Don't blame me. That's what God told Moses to tell Israel, all right? It's just, you know, I'm, I'm just the, 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 the voice, I guess, you know, that's speaking through the conduit. Um, but we are, and we are because resources and money is a big topic with God. You may have heard the stat before, um, but God, uh, the Bible speaks more about our resources, our wealth, than it does about the concept of love. It's almost as if um, the Bible's saying, you will know what you love by how you spend your resources. Now, hopefully when we get to the end of today, uh, you won't feel... Um, pressured or coerced or anything like that because that's also not of God. And we'll talk about what that means of of the invitation. You might have noticed an interesting phrase in here which we're gonna address. But it's God is saying basically, look, I'm gonna tell you how to build the tabernacle. I'm gonna give you precise dimensions, step-by-step resources and everything, but you're gonna fund it, Israel. You have stake in the game as well. We're gonna do this together. And if Israel was kind of like, uh, I'm not so sure. You could ask the question, and, and you probably should be thinking, where did they get all these resources? Where did they get the gold and the silver and, and the ram skin and everything? And you remember, if, if you've been following with this story, way back when God is about to liberate Israel out of Egypt, what does he tell them to do? He tells them to ask the Egyptians for gold and silver, which is an interesting request. As they're leaving, he tells the Israelites to ask your Egyptians for resources. And uh, he makes the Egyptians favorably disposed. So they give them resources. And so it says Israel plundered the Egyptians. So I only say that because as we think through, if you want to know sort of uh, the biblical understanding of our resources, of our wealth, it's all from God. It's been loaned to us. Uh, We can utilize it. And even the stuff we've worked really hard for, and I know we have, we've worked really hard for things. We recognize as followers of this God that it's all a gift. He gave us the ability, the passions. He gave us the relationships uh, to be able to work and survive in this world. It's all from him and it's all for him. But, When God says, take up an offering from the Israelites, there's an interesting phrase he uses, which I think is important for us. What does he say? He says, take up an offering from every person whose heart is moved. Take up an offering from every person whose heart is moved. The Hebrew phrase for that is nadav lev. Lev means heart. And nadav means sort of moved, impelled, compelled. So from every person whose heart is compelled, take up an offering. Now that word nadav is used most often in the Hebrew scriptures to describe uh, what a man felt, what a Jewish man felt when they were signing up to go to battle. So think about that. Think about sort of this patriotism. When you, you hear about this cause, this cause, this story, bigger than your own life, and you're so moved by it, you're so compelled, you're like, I wanna be a part of that, I'm signing up for it. That's what's going on. 
God is saying to Moses, tell the Israelites that we're gonna build a home for me to dwell among you and describe it. Describe what this grand plan called Israel that I'm doing is and describe it. And for everyone who is deeply compelled by this vision, you give. And so it's not forced. It's not coerced. But it also begs another interesting question. Why is it voluntary? Because that's what's going on. Why a voluntary offering? Especially when you read throughout the history of Israel, there are many offerings that are not voluntary. There are regular sacrifices that Israelites, all Israelites are expected to bring. And, and God makes um, uh, concessions. He, he sort of kind of like our modern day tax brackets. Israel was told what to bring based on how much they made. So if you were you know, the upper tax bracket, you brought a, a heifer. If you're in the middle tax bracket, you brought a smaller animal, a goat. Uh, if you were in the lower tax bracket, you brought doves. And that's actually, in fact, how we know Jesus was born into a poor family. It's because we're told in the Gospel of Luke that um, Mary and Joseph went to the temple to offer the Thanksgiving offering, and they brought doves. So we know that Jesus was born into poverty. But we have these offerings throughout Israel's history where God says, these are not voluntary, these are mandatory. You have to bring these. Now, why is this one, the building of the portable home, vo voluntary, excuse me? Well, I think to answer that question, we gotta travel forward in Israel's history. A couple hundred years. Oh, I'm sorry, no, a couple thousand years. <laughs> Get my dates wrong. We gotta travel to King Solomon. So King Solomon, for those who don't know, um, was the last king, well, I guess that's not, he was a, one of the last kings uh, of a united Israel. So Israel ends up splitting around 1000 BC. They end up splitting into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Solomon was one of the last kings when all of Israel was united. And he was in his, um, when he was reigning, Israel was at the height of their superiority. They were a global superpower. And during his reign, there was still a tabernacle. God still dwelt among his people in a portable home. And Solomon's father, David, wanted to build a temple, wanted to build an eternal home, like a structure for God. And God tells David, no, you can't do it, but your son will. And so Solomon decides and sets out to build God a temple. He goes, look, God, it's not right that I dwell in this palace and you dwell in a portable home, a circus tent. Like, that's not right. You need to dwell and something just as lavish as, as what I dwell in. And so he wants to build a temple, but this is how it reads in uh, 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter five. King Solomon's about to build the temple, and this is what we read. King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. Now he sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor, Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed the workmen. That's a very um, extensive task and operation right there. Well, he builds the temple, and then Solomon dies. And the people in the north, they send representatives down to Solomon's son, who's assuming the throne. And this is what they say. So this is going forward in 1 Kings, seven chapters of 1 Kings 12. So they sent for Jeroboam, this is the northern kingdom, they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, and was supposed to take over Israel. And they said to him, your father laid a heavy yoke on us. 
but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke you put on us, and we will serve you. Now, as you're reading this, if you're a diligent uh, Hebrew reader of the Hebrew scriptures, your mind should be moving here because there's certain echoes, there's certain parallels of phrases. You see that word harsh labor. And because we're just reading through Exodus, we remember that that's the same Hebrew phrase that was described of Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt. You see that, you remember that Moses saw Israelites burdens in Exodus 6.6 and he says I will bring you out from under the heavy yoke of the Egyptians it's the same phrase now used in Solomon's day and then there's that phrase Miskinah which is a store city which Solomon is building he's building these these store cities for his excesses and you remember that Pharaoh too was building store cities and then it dawns on you oh my gosh Israel has become another Egypt Solomon has become another Pharaoh. Solomon, in effect, says Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, turned the Israelites into a conscripted labor force, the very thing that they had left Egypt to avoid. So we read with Moses, God tells Moses, hey, tell the people we're gonna do a new work and it's gonna be awesome but take the offering from everyone whose heart is moved because worship built by forced labor is not true worship. We all have to respond as free individuals, as a free family and say, yes, I'm in this vision, but we cannot be conscripted to do the vision. So the challenge is there. The challenge is there. God is saying, if your heart is moved, you need to partner, but I'm not gonna force you. I'm not gonna force you. And so from this, so that's how chapter 25 starts out. And then God starts directing Moses about the various items and the tabernacle. And I'm gonna go through these fast. I wanna put a picture up there because I don't know if everyone has a, I don't know your biblical background. So these are some of the items that are within the circus tent of the tabernacle. I hope y'all don't think that's irreverent to call it a circus. And I'm just trying to, you know, keep the, the image going. So first God says to Moses to tell Israel to build the ark. So the ark is a chest of acacia wood, certain dimensions, gold inside, gold outside. You have to put poles to help carry the ark and build rings into the chest because you can't touch it. It's so holy, if you touch it, you die. And the tablets of the testimony, the tablets that Moses received on top of Mount Sinai with the 10 commandments and the book of the covenant, they go in there. And on top of the ark, is the atonement cover called the mercy seat of pure gold. And that'll come in as important later on. And carve into it cherubim. And for those who don't know, cherubim are are heavenly beings. They're heavenly creatures. We're told in 1 Samuel 4 and 2 Samuel 6 and many Psalms that God is enthroned between the cherubim, which is just sort of, uh, for us moderns, it kind of scares us a little and weirds us out. But the truth of, of the story is that there is a heavenly reality and an earthly reality. There is a spiritual reality and we don't know fully what's going on, but there are creatures in the spiritual world um, that have power and that have presence in the, the life of the total cosmos. And so build the ark. And then God says, build the table and the lampstand. Now the table is of acacia wood. It's gold with molding on it. And you put plates and dishes of gold for the bread of the presence. Interesting, hopefully you're starting to draw some parallels. 
for the bread of the presence. And that goes in the holy place. And now the lampstand is supposed to be gold. Four flower cups, buds, blossoms carved into it. The buds are meticulously placed. They need to go like this. And then you put the, this bud above this bud and this flower below this flower. And see that you make them, says God. And he says this throughout these five chapters. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Don't deviate from it. I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. Make it just how I show you. And then he gets to the actual tabernacle, the actual curtains. And he goes, there, there are 10 curtains of various yarns, various colored yarns. And each curtain is 28 cubits long, four cubits wide. Uh, let's see if you can do the math real quick. Anyone? No, okay. No savants in the room. That's fine. Join five together with loops and clasp and poles and goat hairs for the tent cover over the curtains. Now make frames of acacia wood to hang the curtains on, 20 on the north, 20 on the south. Crossbars, silver bases, hold them together. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. And the curtains will also be made to create boundaries, to create divisions between the outer courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. And in the most holy place, don't worry, we're going to show you a picture. In the most holy place, that's where the Ark of, of the Covenant goes. And then there are more items that God gives directions for. And this is all in chapter 25 through 30. The altar of burnt offering, which is in the courtyard. And the courtyard itself has precise dimensions. And oil for the lamp is meticulously chosen. Garments for the priests are sacred. So make the ephod this way of certain colored yarns. And make the sash and the tunic and the turban this way. And the breastplate must have these different stones and designs carved into it of fruits and trees and the phrase holy to the Lord. And we know that the priests, the priests are the institution of the mediator. Moses is going to go. Moses is the mediator between God and his people. Moses is going to lead, but the priest is going to fill that role. And they're going to be the mediator, the institutionalized mediator. So it's important that you get it exactly according to the dimensions that I give you. Precise instructions for how the priests are to be consecrated before they enter the holy place and the most holy place. And so when he finishes all these directions, do you have the mental image? Can you see it? You got it? It looks like this. Oh, it's already up there, of course. Um, that's the tabernacle. So that's what God tells Moses to tell Israel to build. And he goes, I'm going to dwell here. So when you enter the entrance right there on sort of our east side, uh, and you have the altar of the burnt offering with the slaughter tables for the offering that you brought. And then you have the bronze washing where you wash yourself. And then only the priest can enter the holy place, which is that um, the smaller structure. But that, that smaller structure is also divided into two. So only the priests enter the holy place where the bread of the presence is. And then only the high priest, once a year, can enter into the further inner portion of the tabernacle, which is the most holy place. And they enter there to offer the sacrifice for himself and for all the people once a year. Now, how is this the paradigm? If he's the God who builds tabernacles, that's what he does wherever he goes. How is this the paradigm? Well, when you read this section of scripture, in the same way that when you read 1 Kings and some of those phrases stand out and you're like, oh my gosh, Israel's becoming another Egypt. When you read this section of God commanding Moses for how to build a tabernacle, phrases stand out as well. And you're like, oh, I've seen this before. Where's this coming from? So what are these phrases? Phrases like this. They shall make me a sanctuary. 
They shall make me an ark, make me a table. Moses saw, Moses beheld all the skilled work as God commanded it. They had done it. Moses completed, Moses finished the work. Moses blessed the work and he sanctified it. He consecrated it. Make, see, complete, bless, sanctify, work, behold. Friends, the tabernacle is a second creation. If you just finished Exodus, and you're, and you're, or I'm sorry, just finished Genesis, and you're now moving into Exodus, you remember when God created the heavens and the earth, and these verbs and these phrases were everywhere. And you see them again in the same sort of order and flow and, and, and fluidity. And you realize that the tabernacle is a second creation, or we might say the tabernacle is a new creation. It's a new creation in the midst of the old. It is the earthly representation of the heavenly reality where the heaven and earth are united again, even in the midst of a broken old creation. You see God's plan here. When he wants to make something new, he doesn't scrap what is old and go over there and start over. No, he makes something new directly in the middle of what's old. He doesn't avoid our brokenness. He enters into it. Take comfort in that today, where you feel like an absolute colossal failure. God's will for you as an individual is not to avoid those areas where you feel like a colossal failure. He wants to enter into it with joy and with love. That's what he wants to do. He builds the new creation in the midst of the old. And the tabernacle is where God dwells with his people. And notice, it's all there and it's so beautiful. Even the Trinitarian division. Can we put the picture back up? Even the Trinitarian division. We say, we affirm, we learn later that God is one and three beautiful persons. And even in this, it's one tabernacle and three beautiful sections. But not, not even sections like, like divided into thirds. So if you're in one part, you're not in the other. When you're in the most holy place, you're in all. You're in the holy place and in the courtyard. It's almost as if it's a journey within. When you enter the ta tabernacle, you're journeying into the very heart of it. And if it represents where God dwells with his people, you're journeying into the very heart of your creator. The tabernacle is, the is that earthly representation of a heavenly reality. And then you start thinking through the parallels between this and Genesis, and you notice that even this is like a microcosmic story of what's been going on. That, that if Genesis is the prologue, and it must be read continuously with Exodus, it kind of explains our own lives, right? When you and I wake up, where do we wake up? If we can divide the, the, the whole gospel story into four parts, creation, fall, salvation, and new creation, right? Where do we wake up? We wake up in the chapter of salvation. We wake up into a world that is defined by haves and haves nots, by oppressed and oppressor. We wake up into slavery. We're enslaved to sin. And we hear the story, and it's part of our primeval uh, history of that God created and that we fell. But we wake up into the first part of the Exodus where God goes, I've come for you. I'm not abandoning you. Follow me. And we do. And we follow him into the desert. And in the desert, God makes the new creation, the tabernacle, the place where heaven and earth are one again, which was to have been his intention all along. New creation in the midst of old creation. It's as if God has dived into the very heart of the broken cosmos and is slowly 
just bringing it back to life, like yeast working through all the dough. And then when you think about that too, you realize that there's even something more going on with Israel, right? Israel is told to build a tabernacle, but why did God call Israel? God called Israel to be a light for the nations. He goes, look, you are gonna be my special chosen people and our relationship is gonna be so unique that everyone's gonna look to you and not understand you and persecute you and they're gonna like scatter you across the face of the earth, but don't worry, the land doesn't define your relationship with me. Something else does, so you can be scattered wherever you go and still be my chosen people. And you realize that Israel has a tabernacle and Israel is a tabernacle. It keeps like just extending outward. It's this beautiful rhyming, history rhymes. It doesn't repeat. It's not a one-for-one allegory, but it's this beautiful pattern, this dance. Israel has a tabernacle. They're told to construct something where God dwells with them. The tabernacle is the mediator which brings together God and Israel. But Israel themselves, as a people, they are a tabernacle because they bring together human creation, fallen creation, and the living God. It's incredible. But then how is this the paradigm for us? Because the story doesn't end there, right? We know the story of Israel. Uh, They're faithless. They constantly disobey the commandments God has given them. And prophets come and they sort of call them to repentance. And it's this history, which probably doesn't sound too foreign to you and I, of being on our knees saying, God, I love you, I wanna serve you, and then being somewhere else on another day, and like, who is this God? Bah. <laughs> and then realizing, waking up from that, and be like, oh, what did I do? So this constant dance of sin and re- repentance, sin and repentance, and God always, he works among his people. But how is this the paradigm for us? God is the God who builds tabernacles to dwell among his people. Well, we're told in the Gospel of John, um, who's recounting the life of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the Jewish carpenter, who was a carpenter for 30 years, and then he had an itinerant ministry where he talked about the kingdom of God. He said, hey, the kingdom of God has come in a new way, in a fresh way, Um, and you can't stop it. And he healed people and he forgave people. He forgave people who seemingly didn't wrong him. He's like, no, you're forgiven too. It's all grace, it's all forgiveness. But follow me, it's still really hard, follow me. And John, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, he writes this and he's starting his account of the life and ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is what he says in John one. He goes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, that whole first part where he calls Jesus the word, that has its own thing, which comes from uh, Stoic philosophy, which is uh, something John's trying to communicate. I'm not gonna worry about that, but just for your purposes, the word means Jesus. So he says, Jesus, God became flesh and dwelt among us. But that second part made his dwelling among us. That should perk our ears. Most of the New Testament writers, um, they were operating off of Uh, a Hebrew, uh, off of their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, but not written in Hebrew. It was a form called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, all right? And there's a lot of history behind that. 
But that's what they were operating off of when they're writing, you know, their gospel accounts and their letters. They're operating off of a Greek translation of their Hebrew stories, the story of their people. And so when, when John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, that, that word for made his dwelling is skeneo, skeneo, which means to dwell. But the noun form of skeneo is skene. And if you were reading the Septuagint, the Hebrew scriptures, you see skene a lot. And you can probably already guess what skene means. Tabernacle. So what is John saying about Jesus? He's saying God became flesh and tabernacled among us. You don't need the old tabernacle anymore. I'm coming myself and tabernacling among you. The concept of the tabernacle is not abolished by Jesus. It's even deepened by Jesus. It's fulfilled by him. Jesus is the new and improved tabernacle. Jesus is not a dulling of the majesty of the Old Testament tabernacle, but an amplifying of what it stood for. The way, the life, and the truth that God is saying to the world, hey world, I'm gonna live with you. You can't stop me. I will be with you and I will save you. I will heal you. I'm coming myself. And so you look at the picture too again um, of the tabernacle and you realize that even this sort of Uh, speaks a little bit to Jesus's life, the outer courtyard where all people are. And you know in his ministry, and we'll talk about it in a minute with with us in Hope Brooklyn, he's constantly surrounded by crowds and disciples. He's surrounded by those who are following him as the Messiah and those who don't know who he is. And he's totally fine with that. But even in his life and ministry, there's the outer courtyard. And then there's the, the altar of sacrifice where he offers the sacrifice and washes and enters into the holy place where he eats the bread of the presence and then enters into the most holy place where only the high priest is supposed to enter once a year to offer blood on the mercy seat. You see the Trinitarian division everywhere and you wonder, okay, well, how is that represented in Jesus's life? And it's answered for us by a confusing letter for us today called the letter to the Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, not the Old Testament, even though it's called the letter to the Hebrews. Um, And many scholars hold that it it was one of the first sermons that we have. It's actually a sermon, which if you read that, you're like, oh my gosh, I would not go to that church (laughs) because it is intense. But actually the the author of the letter, he addresses this whole tabernacle paradigm in chapter nine. And this is what he says. Check this out, guys. Now the first covenant, it had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. Now this was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense, the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Now above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Now when everything had been arranged like this, The priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place has not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. It's an illustration for the present time, indicating that gifts and sacrifices being offered are not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper, 
They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came, as high priest of the good things that are now already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin, with this enslavement of all of us by the sacrifice of himself. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So if we remember the four parts of the gospel story, creation, God creates this beautiful world where heaven and earth are one and the earth rebels. And we don't know how necessarily, we have this beautiful story that describes it, but the earth rebels. We wake up into the rebellion. We wake up into a world where heaven and earth are separated. And we're told that God has chosen a people to come and he's, and he's creating them to be a special people. And in the midst of them, he builds a portable home where he will dwell among them, where he builds this new creation in the midst of the old. And even then, you're like, well, it's still not fully complete because Israel can't live to the fullness of the promises. And then we're told, amazingly, God comes himself and tabernacles among us. God comes himself and enters into the real tabernacle by his own blood. And because he doesn't stay dead, but he's raised to life, his forgiveness of sins is offered free of charge. The new creation is fully uh, finished and begun in his death and resurrection. In Jesus, once again, through the command of God, in the obedience of a human, for remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. The new mediator who won the world back through his own blood, which is better than that of bulls and goats. Earlier I said Israel has a tabernacle and Israel is a tabernacle. Well, what we can say with Jesus is Jesus is the new and improved tabernacle and Jesus is the new and improved Israel. He's the Israel that Israel was always supposed to have been, but never could because they too were enslaved. But he ascended Jesus ascended. So where is the God who builds tabernacles now? Where is he? You probably see where I'm going with this. But 
If you remember Paul's letter to the, the Corinthian church, he writes, don't you know, you yourselves are God's temple. You can also read Tabernacle. And that God's spirit lives in you. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You are not your own. See, we see the tabernacle where the burnt offering has been given and where the washing in the basin has happened. And we think, oh my gosh, we acknowledge that Christ has fulfilled all the regulations of the tabernacle. And now I can be baptized into his name. I too can wash and enter into the holy place. And we enter into the holy place where the bread of the presence is there and we share and remember. We share and remember what Christ has done for us. And in the most holy place where the tablets of God's face resides because God now dwells in us too, we have access to. And how do we have access? I don't know if you remember this little detail. When Jesus died on the cross, when he, upon his death, we're told the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place, it's split but it's split from top to bottom, as if to suggest no human cut it. God cut it. Now, the most holy place is not separated from the rest of us. We can enter into the very heart of God too boldly because Christ has entered on our behalf before us. The tabernacle is God's creative and loving presence on earth. It's God's new creation in the midst of the old. And wherever people gather, to repent and worship God. The tabernacle is there. The new creation is there. We are a tabernacle of God in Brooklyn. Now I don't say the, because there are many wonderful churches, but we're one. We are a tabernacle of God in Brooklyn. And now that, that, that tabernacle separation between one group sort of the mediator that brings the two together and God has become Jesus. Jesus the Jew and Jesus whose body is us, the church. We are the point where heaven and earth unite again, where we gather to repent and to worship. Hope Brooklyn, we're officially six months old. We launch to say, hey, we, we feel competent enough to call ourselves a, a new church this past Easter. As Nathan said, we've been gathering in this space um, for a little over a year and then gathering down here for worship gatherings um, in two weeks. We started the preview season. So October 30th, last year, is when we started our preview services, which is so crazy. And to see how God has shaped this over the last year is amazing. I don't know, for whoever was here this time last year, we didn't have our tagline yet. We didn't have our pillars we knew that God wanted to do something, but we didn't know who we were going to be or how he was going to shape us. And over this last year, we sort of slowly have, have developed and cultures established and he's given us this idea that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. That we are a place where if you grew up in the church or if you walked away and you're coming back, you can come and ask deep questions, ask hard questions. Questions are, are not a bad thing. So Christians, those who, who call themselves Jesus followers can come and ask questions and seek and explore. And likewise, those who did not grow up in the church and those who aren't sure about Jesus, they can come and be skeptical about their skepticism. 
they can deconstruct their stories as well. So this is, we've created this environment where, where all people can come wherever they are and ask questions and study the story and turn our eyes to the story. And I don't know if you know how rare that is to create a middle space where I don't have to be this or that. I can be something in between. I, yeah, that's kind of snarky right there. We live in a world where you have to be this or that. If you're not this, you're that. If you're not that, you're this. And to create a space where you say you can come and you can be totally fine and unsure what you are. And we're gonna talk about the story of Jesus over and over because there's something about that story. There's something about it. And I can't even put my finger on fully what it is, but it reaches a register. It reaches a register that churns and comes alive. And so we develop these, these, uh, these pillars we said we're crowds and disciples. We're a community. Like when you read the ministry of Jesus, he was surrounded by all types of people. Like what I just said, you don't have to know what you are to be around Jesus. You can come and ask questions. And we're a community of the story. We tell the story over and over and over again. And we do that most of the time when we eat together face to face, especially cereal, right? Preach. We've been meeting for almost one year. And it's been really humbling to see what God has done. And so a couple things, both quantitative and qualitative, about what this last year has been for Hope Brooklyn. And preface the whole quantitative stuff. Uh, what I like to say about numbers, numbers don't mean everything. But they mean something. Right? There's something about them that we need to be attuned to, but they don't mean everything. So keep that in mind. So when I look at, at Hope Brooklyn, sort of our, our baseline of like, what defines what it means to be part of this community? 75% of our community is part of a table. And tables are our small groups that happen throughout the week. If you're not part of one, sign up for one. You can find it uh, online. 75%, friends, the average in churches throughout the country is 30 to 40%. So you obviously are bought into this vision of, Life's too short to eat alone. We need to create environments where we can come to the table and support one another. 70% 70 of our community is on a team, both the Sunday morning teams that help make the services go and our justice team, which is exploring ways to serve neighboring Brooklyn. That also is super rare that that high of a percentage would be bought in. And we just talked about it this morning with those who are serving today. It's a subversive act. I don't know if you know that to wake up early on a Sunday morning and to come serve people when you're already working extremely hard Monday through Friday, that is a deeply subversive act to our cultural idols, which has put myself first. 70% of us are saying that. 35 to 40% of our community offers finances to help Hope Brooklyn, help build this tabernacle, which is also really high. And from this time last year to where we are today, 175% uh, of growth is what we've experienced from those who have sort of added to the community. Numbers don't mean everything, but they mean something. Now here's what's more important to me, qualitatively. When I talk to many of you about what do you think of Hope Brooklyn? What do you like about it? Or what, why, why Hope Brooklyn? This is what you say. You say there's, and, and many times you can't put your finger on it, but there's something, there's a warmth about this community. There's there's a lack of pretentiousness. We're almost like church for the rest of us. Like for those who sort of always, you know, 
trying to figure your spot in, in the world. You're like, ah, I'm not sure. And then you come here and you're like, oh, this is it. And I love that about us. I think what we're circling around is this idea of joy. There's a deep joy in this community for one another to welcome the stranger, to, to say, hey, you don't have to have it all figured out. Just come and sit and have some pancakes or some bagel and eggs. There's this joy about the community. And secondly, what I'd say is this, is what I hear when I talk to many of you. If you grew up or if you call yourself a Jesus follower, you constantly say you're challenged by this community. That it's not easy. It's not simple. I, to use the language of Walter Brueggemann, who's a theologian, he would say, you're being disoriented. You're being disoriented that the house is, is sure, but there are a couple things that maybe could use correction or questioning. You're diving deeper. And for many of you who um, would not call yourselves followers of Jesus, you're saying there's something compelling about this, which Walter Brueggemann would say, you're being oriented around the story. So we're having one side being pulled toward the center and the other side being pulled to the center and the center is Jesus himself. I think that smells like God. I think that smells like something God's about where we're just growing less and less and this figure, this person is just absolutely blazing our minds more and more and more. And like I said earlier, that's super rare. That's super rare. Another thing that's super rare, look around you. Do you see how diverse our community is? Just the other day, uh, I, it was very much an honor. I, um, we have this um, organization in the city who raises lots of money and has been supporting Hope Brooklyn this last year. And they invited me to come and talk with some of their big donors, people who write like 10 and $15 million checks. And it's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> James too, James too, all right. Um, and you know what they wanted to ask me, the, the primary question? They're like, Hope Brooklyn is known for being incredibly diverse. How? <laughs> God? <laughs> Seriously, guys, we are creating a reputation around the city for being so diverse. That's God. Especially when it's not easy. And we all know that. It's not easy to sit across the table from someone who seemingly, on first glance, we don't have a lot in common where we're old Brooklyn, we're native Brooklynites and new Brooklynites coming together, where we come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different stories, where it will be awkward, where we will offend one another, we'll say the wrong things, but to not reject, to push into that, that's not easy. That's not easily done. And I sure as heck could not create that. The only reason we have this is because Jesus is at the center of what's going on in this place. He's doing it. He's doing it. And I'm just, I'm humbled to be a part of this journey. And so as I was thinking of a good metaphor to describe like what's happened this last year and where I think Hope Brooklyn is going, of course, the metaphor that came to mind is the game Risk, right? Makes sense. Anyone ever play Risk? Yeah. My brothers and I, I have two brothers. We love Risk. I have no idea why. Because inevitably, we'll get together at family time and it's, it's not often we get to see each other now. And be like, what do we want to do? Let's play risk. And we know in two hours, maybe three, one among us will be so ecstatic, they'll be weeping tears of joy. And the other two, their night will have just been ruined. And we're like, why are we so masochistic? Why do we do this to ourselves? Because I think, and I've never done too much gambling, but I think this is the gambler's predicament. 
I see the probability, I see two-thirds the chance I'm going to lose. But what if I win? <laughs> right? What? what? Let's let it ride. What if I win? So here's risk. Now, classic strategy and risk. And I think we'll put the first picture. Yeah, there you go. Classic strategy and risk. Go with me, guys. Trust me, all right? You, you, the object of the game is to take over the world, which I realize is a fatal flaw in my metaphor because Hope Brooklyn's object is not to take over the world. But just go with me, all right? Um, classic strategy and risk. You sort of put territories, armies on your territories, and then you try to take more territories. Well, most people, and the way I grew up playing, you sort of leave your internal, your core, um, very weak, and you put all your armies, as you gather new armies, on the, your borders, because you're going to attack into it. So you want to make your borders super strong, and you make your internal weak, which is fun when you start that, that mad dash when you go through you know, South America and up into North America. But it also leaves yourself super vulnerable for a counterattack. Um, that's the way my brothers and I played for a long time. But then my older brother, who's never been accused of being the smartest one among us, he thought up a different idea. Matthew, I love you. I don't know if you're listening, but I love you. He thought up a different idea. So you can go to the next one. And you can't see it fully there, but he did something different. So instead of putting his strong forces on the borders and leaving his core weak, every time he gained more armies, he made his core super strong. So he built up his core from the inside out. And then slowly, like, he'd, put, he'd take like one land at a time, one country at a time. So he gained his cards. For any of you risk players, you know what I mean by that. So he gained his cards, but he slowly built out the core. And friends, I kid you not, when he discovered this game plan, and we played probably seven or eight times in a row, he won every single time. And we were angry. <laughs> this is some, some voodoo going on in here. We're like, what? how is this working? But it did. Do you see my point? <laughs> Hope Brooklyn, we're creating this place that's not easy, that's deeply subversive, which has a very high percentage rate of you guys involved. The core is becoming super, super strong and slowly pushing out in our neighborhoods. Now, again, our goal is not to take over Brooklyn, <laughs> but our goal is to plant a table in every neighborhood our goal is to continue working hard until every single person in this city knows that they don't have to be alone. Knows that their God is actually not angry at them, but fiercely loves them and has been pursuing them since the day they were born. Knows that their God actually wants to cry with them, weep with them, like wants to do that and has done that and is doing that. Knows that they're invited into a story bigger than their own. They're invited into a story bigger than their own. And I wanna, I wanna be a part of that, personally. I wanna be a part of that. So where are we headed in 2018? Well, some of you may know this, some of you don't. We, we established a church council this year. It's part of our denomination's bylaws, but it's also a way to help bring more voices to the table, to help um, think through what, are, what is God calling us to and to steward the resources of our community well. So our church council is made up of David Santos, uh, John Wong, Alice Cha, Sharon Chu, and myself. Which if you know any of those people, um, we have diverse representation of, all, of native and new Brooklynite, of male and female, of uh, various cultures. And so we did that to try to create a space where all of our blind spots are covered. 
and we're able to think through what represents the community best. And as we've been meeting over the last couple months, looking at uh, our budgets and sort of projecting and looking at um, our vision and what God's saying, there are three areas, three key areas that stick out to us of God's inviting us into these spaces. And that's what we're gonna pursue. And they're this. First, for the young professionals. There are many of you here who moved to New York or have been here who are in first jobs or second jobs, who are exploring what it means to be a Christian in your work. And we, we wanna provide opportunities uh, for you and your friends and your colleagues to do just that. So we're gonna bring in forums. We're gonna have forums, bring in speakers. We're gonna have parties. Um, we wanna provide spaces for young professionals in our community to think through uh, what it means to be a Christian in this city or to, uh, to, to explore the story of God in this city. Secondly, families. So our children's ministry has grown. And as of now, this year, what our children's ministry has been has focusing just on Sunday mornings. We wanna expand that. We wanna create space and room for families to come alongside one another, to disciple one another, to to commiserate together outside of Sundays. And then third, we're gonna pursue justice. So justice is a huge part of our community. As Zoe talked about with Recovery House of Worship, we've been um, working with them. They're an amazing church in the neighborhood. We've been helping them out, providing people power. Um, But we wanna pursue making justice even more a part of our community. And specifically, we're gonna do it through the youth in Brooklyn, and specifically Gowanus. And the reason why we're doing that um, is because there's a lot of youth that are, are kind of overlooked in the city. And we've um, we put out a survey a couple months back about what you might be passionate about. And many of you said you're passionate about youth. And different conversations have developed among Young Life and among Trellis who have relationships with youth in the neighborhood. And so we're gonna say yes to that. So we're gonna pour all our financial and our, our people power into serving the youth in Brooklyn. And that became really real for me also. Um, This past Friday, I went to a vigil at the Gowanus Houses um, where a kid was recently shot. There's escalating gang tension between the Gowanus and the Red Hook Houses. And um, it was an incredibly powerful experience and it just reiterated the need um, for spaces, for alternate stories for youth, um, for their lives. And so we're gonna push into that. We're gonna push into that. And in addition to these three things, we're gonna keep having Sunday services and renting out this space, hopefully. And we're gonna keep doing brunches and we're gonna keep doing tables and we're gonna keep serving. Um, and we're developing lots of cool stuff. Seriously, I wake up every morning, no joke, with like three new ideas. And then I text our staff and Nathan and Liz are like, no, 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 no. <laughs> don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. I'm like, all right, give me one, just give me one. <laughs> But we got such new stuff. We're gonna do prayer and worship nights. We're gonna create environments where we can come together and just soak and heal. We're gonna expand tables. We're gonna start, this is the one idea I got to start. We're gonna start a leadership table uh, in the spring where we're gonna uh, explore the various aspects of faith in the city. We're gonna do the Enneagram and explore your various personality and leadership styles um, as a way to sort of see what God might be calling you to in this city and within Hope Brooklyn. So that's gonna be exciting. So we're doing all of that. And that's where we're going in 2018. Now, you heard me say at the beginning that there was gonna be an ask for financial partnership. And that's gonna be this next part. We're young, we're growing. And so the invitation for us as a community is three ways. 
We have a saying here, we say the whole family makes it happen. If we're gonna adopt Matthew's risk strategy, then we gotta develop a super solid core where all of us are invested with our full time and our efforts and what we can bring to what God is doing. So the invitation is threefold. First, if you're here and you're like, I'm not sure who this Jesus is, but I'm super compelled by his story, I wanna invite you to take a step of faith, to simply say, I wanna learn more. And the way you can do that is in the connection cards uh, in your seat back pocket. If you just fill it out and just put either um, baptism or what is Christianity and drop it in the generosity box on the way out. And I'll be in touch and I would love to explore with you. Secondly, commit. If you've been coming for a bit and you're like, I like this church, I'm stirred by the vision of this church, um, but what, where we're going from there, you're sort of on the fence, let today be the day that you jump in. Like fully say, this is my family. I'm gonna join something. I'm gonna lead something. I'm gonna host something. I'm gonna create a culture of invitation of bringing my friends here, bringing my colleagues who need to hear this message, who need a space to sit and to, to pray. So commit and jump in. And then finally, as God told Moses to tell Israel, if your heart is stirred by this vision, no coercion, but if your heart is stirred by this vision, then help us build the tabernacle. Help us build what we feel God is calling us to. Um, our council set a 2018 budget. And for those of you who don't know, uh, we're a new church. So this past year in 2017, one third of our revenue was made up of us, those who are part of the family. The other two thirds of our revenue came from outside sources, grants from church planting organizations um, and other personal fundraising and stuff like that, which is super normal. Like if you think about the marketplace, when a company has an idea, they bring on venture capitalists to help fund the idea. But ultimately the idea has to take over and be self-generating and self-propagating. So for where we're projecting to go next year, we need to take a step. So right now one third is represented by us, we need to take that to one half. So next year, one half of our revenue comes from us, from the community. So the invitation is to help us take that step. Help us take that step towards self-sufficiency. And as we all know, when we put our money to something, we care about it. And I hate it when people do this, where they say, you know, for one dinner and five lattes, you know, you could help support this. So I'm not gonna do that, but, there's a, a kind of a hidden truth into it when you think about it, right? Like for one dinner and five lattes, that's maybe 50 bucks. And to partner with this community that I care about for 50 bucks. And you don't wanna draw like equivalencies of, is this community and this family worth as much as one dinner and five lattes? <laughs> Hopefully we are. Um, but you know, you start thinking about it on those terms as well. Now, I know because I'm one of you, Habits are tough to change. I remember when God was starting to impress upon me the need to give to the local church to help, uh, to realize that everything he's given me is not mine, it's his. And this is one way, like this is part of the, the, the gig, the part of following him to make sure that my, my wealth and my resources don't become a stranglehold, that I don't depend on them too much. And it was hard. Like, it was very much like God saying, give, 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 give. And I'm like, uh, 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 uh. Okay, fine. And then give, give, uh, uh, fine. 
It's hard. Habits are tough to change. I said this last week. C.S. Lewis has this line. He goes, if you run across a malnourished man, your first instinct is going to be to give him a five-course meal. But if you do that, you're going to kill him. You're going to kill him. You have to feed him slowly. Build it back up. So what we're asking for today, don't feel like hopefully this alleviates the pressure. The invitation for you is if you're stirred by the vision of what God's doing among this community, take one baby step of partnership. One baby step. So here's what that would be. If you're here and you're not giving at all, start. Just start. You know the various platforms we can do it. You can bring a gift. Uh, you can do Venmo. You can do online. Uh, we're not going to tell you how much. We're not going to tell you a percentage. We're not going to tell you any of that. But if you're stirred by this vision, take a baby step and start giving. If you're here and you give irregularly, which is the vast majority of us, and what I mean by that is you give when you think about it, right? Maybe one month you give it on this date, and then you miss next month, and you give it the next month after that. The baby step for you is to start giving regularly. And the best way to do that is to set up a recurring gift online. So you can go to our website, and you can select, um, all right, I want to give this amount every Sunday, or every other Sunday, or once a month, or whatever it is, based on your, um, your situation, and it immediately debits out of it. And that does two things. The reason why that's important does two things. It's kind of what my wife taught me when we were dating. It's a, it's a DTR. Y'all know what a DTR is? I didn't. It's a define the relationship is what it is. So apparently, I didn't know this, but Anna and I were hanging out and you know, I was like, this is, this is great. And she sat me down one day and she's like, hey, we need to have a DTR. And I said, come again? <laughs> and she explained it to me. And it was important for her that she know exactly what I'm thinking and I know exactly what she's thinking. And the reason is so that we could manage each other's emotions, so that we could, you know, take steps together, so that, and this is going to be tough to hear, it was kind of selfish on my part, right? I kind of wanted the perks of hanging out and, you know, being a boyfriend without taking that label on, right? So it's a DTR to set up a recurring gift. It's a DTR with us. Because as Hope Brooklyn, we know every month we're expecting this amount. And we know since you're invested in this, that you have a voice at the table. And, and not to say if you're not invested, you don't have a voice at the table. Of course you do. But it's also a DTR with God. Because I know living in New York, that budgets are tight. And you're, you might have to say, all right, God, if I'm going to step out in this way, if you're stirring in my heart to make this community home and to help build this thing, and I'm going to step out in this way. This is going to make some things tight. You're going to have to come through. And friends, I know it always sounds um, hollow coming from the other end, but from someone who has learned that lesson and seen how God comes through again and again and again in miraculous ways, just do it. <laughs> just do it. It's remarkable to step out and be like, Lord, I kind of need this, but you're my provider and everything is from you. And I love what you're doing in this church and I want to be a part of it. Say, all right, so make up the difference and then to watch how he does. It's really, really cool. So if you're here and you've been given irregularly, set up a recurring gift as we move into 2018. And then finally, if you're here and you already have a recurring gift set up, just return and pray about it. That's all, that's your baby step is return and pray about it. The whole family makes it happen. I'm really excited about what God's doing among us and what he's calling us to in 2018. So let's bring a dish. Let's bring our lucky charms to the table, right? 
So what we're gonna do is this. I wanna invite the worship team forward and I wanna invite the ushers forward. And as we close today, we're gonna come to the table. Um, but the ushers are gonna pass out a card. And on it, it's, it's a pledge card. And it says, I, and we didn't put a spot for you to put your name, so you can just write your name and email at the top and say, I pledge to either start, sustain, or up my financial giving in 2018. And then there's a spot at the bottom where you can put an amount. That's optional. If you already feel like God's put a number on your heart and it's like, yes, I wanna do this or I wanna take this step of faith, then put that there. But you don't have to put the amount. And I know already some of you are thinking, oh, this feels super heavy, super commitment. I get it. I really do. Again, it's not coercion. It's not being pressured. But if your heart is stirred, we need you. Jump into this thing. Help us do this together. So the ushers are gonna come forward and they're gonna pass out this card. And even if you're here for the first time, you've only been coming for a short amount of time, if you know, like if your heart's saying, yes, this is, this is what God's calling us to, let's do it. <laughs> We're a church plant. Everyone comes to the table. So as they pass out the cards, um, we're gonna take communion together. And the reason why we take communion every Sunday as a community is because this is kind of a DTR in a sense. This is our way that we remind ourselves week after week that we are not our own and it's not up to us. We remember God's provision. We remember God's sacrifice through Jesus. Um, so as we get ready to take communion, what I wanna invite you to is just spend some time in prayer and reflection. And when you've done that, uh, please come forward and receive communion. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.